0: to be in Daniel chapter 7 this morning. Daniel chapter 7 this morning. So we are going to end up going backwards to cover chapter 5 and chapter 6, but we are uh, shifting this morning to go into the chronological nature of the the book of Daniel instead of the way that the chapters are ordered uh, in the scripture that we have before us. I think this is perhaps more helpful way of presenting the chapters because what you're going to see is that Daniel has a series of narrative events and then a series of prophecies. But the prophecies, it's told where in the narrative events they happened. And so this morning we shift from uh, a lot of time spent with Nebuchadnezzar to the next king of Babylon, Belshazzar, and if we went straight to chapter five, it is the last few moments of the, the kingdom of Belshazzar where Daniel comes involved there, but there are two visions That Daniel seized prior to that earlier in the kingdom of Babylon under the rule of Belshazzar. And so this morning in Daniel chapter 7 we'll see the first of those visions which takes place in the first year of Belshazzar. And so if we look back and remember Daniel and the, the, the ministry of Daniel, if you will, in Babylon, it lasts from 605 B.C. all the way to much later under many other kings to 536 B.C. It's a long ministry. It's over 70 years of ministry in Daniel's life. And if Daniel started as a teenager in Babylon and went all the way through these 70 years, when we see the very tail end of Daniel's life, he is somewhere in his 80s and so a long faithful ministry and so Daniel in our in our events this morning is no longer a teenager no longer a young man but has grown and is faithful but still remains in a, a place of favor in the Babylonian court he has a reputation for godliness a reputation for being filled with the Holy Spirit and one that people can go to for a true and faithful word from the Lord For those of you that are visiting with us this morning or are new to these things, I want to remind you that it is so important that we emphasize that Daniel is a real person involved with real events in the world and real places in the world. If you want to go and go to museums and see things about Babylonian history, you can go and see those things today. These are real places and real things, but Daniel is teaching us from a perspective that also reminds us that in the flow of history, God has a purpose and God has a plan and God is carrying out things according to his will in the world. And so there are two ways that every single person can view and see the world. First of all, people can see the world as, as chaos, tumultuously going forward, world powers tumbling forward without any real purpose or any plan. There's no guiding hand. These are those that think that the world is simply related to chance, to luck, to fortune, to whoever is strongest, overwhelming the weakest. And this is the way that most people view the world. But it's not so for Christians. It's not so for us who believe the Bible. We, as we see throughout the whole book of Daniel, this powerful theme of the sovereignty of God, that there is a God who has a purpose, and who has a plan, and who has a will, and who is carrying out that will in the world. It is a plan for his own glory. It is a a plan for the salvation of the lost, that they might come to salvation in Christ Jesus. There is a beginning to this and there is an end to this. It is a beginning that began according to the will of the Lord and an end that will end according to the will of the Lord. And we see this powerfully in Daniel chapter seven this morning. In the midst of all of this in the Bible, there is prophecy. And we're starting to enter into a period in the book of Daniel where we're going to see much prophecy. And so what is prophecy? Prophecy in this uh, Old Testament way of expressing it is a window given by God to see the future of his purposes and plans. It is a window given by God for us to see his future purposes and plans. And this is sometimes very unusual. Sometimes there is, as we'll see this morning, uh, apocalyptic visions or symbolic visions. And so what are we supposed to do with these things? I, I think about a chapter like this that we're getting ready to read. If you are a, a brand new person to the church, and this was the first time you had ever come in and sat down in a church, what would you think about hearing these things? And I want you to help you understand this, that prophecy about the future is not meant to be exact representations of the future, but it is meant to convey particular realities and spiritual purposes. It is to convey particular realities and spiritual purposes. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this, that in all prophecy related to the future, we are given enough to create a balance in our heart. And here's what I mean by that that God knows the future and is causing the future to unfold according to his will. And so when he gives us a glimpse into that, what it should do is create great hope in our heart. That the world is not chaotic, the world is not tumbling forward with no purpose or plan. But there is a purpose and a plan, and God is causing that plan to come to pass. And we are given enough clarity in the future that we might hope in it, and a record of those things that have been foretold in the past, and we have seen them come to pass in what is now our past, to where we have hope that God is going to continue to fulfill his prophetic word in the future. But the second part of prophecy is this, is that it is sufficiently unclear so as to cause us to walk by faith. If the prophetic word of the Lord were so clear that we had all of the dates and the times and the things of the future laid out, it would cause us not to walk by faith because we would be waiting for certain things in such a particular way that our expectation and hope in the Lord would be lessened, I believe. And so the way in which the Lord presents prophetic words about the future are clear enough to give us hope in the particularity of the work of the Lord in the future, and that hope causes us to then walk by faith in those things which are unclear, intentionally unclear, so that we might look to the Lord and believe in him for the future, because it is required and has always been required of every person following after the Lord from the Old Testament, from Abraham all the way down to you and I, and to every generation that will come after us until the Lord Jesus comes again, that we must walk by faith. We must believe. Every person that has come to follow after Christ Jesus has come to a place where they believe in him and they follow after him by faith in hope. And so we see this exact thing working in the life of Daniel and we're gonna see it even more as we see uh, additional prophecies fulfilled and given to and then fulfilled in the life of Daniel. That Daniel's hope was waning. He had been in slavery and in captivity for many, many years. And like all of us, he's a real person that after, as he goes through many years of things not working out the way that he had hoped that they would, that his hope is becoming dim. And so the Lord gives him, as he will give you and I, exactly what we need in the moment to help us that our hope may not fail. For many people today, they have no appetite prophecy. And I think there's three, three different things that kind of come into play here. There are those that say that the prophetic words of the scripture are just not clear enough. This is all just a jumble of mess and, and characters that make no sense and things that have no meaning. And so they don't walk by faith because they don't think they're clear enough. But then on the other hand, you run into a group of people that will say, these things are too clear. And they're so clear that they couldn't possibly have been written by the authors that wrote them because it's obvious that they line up with historical realities that we did see come to pass after the prophetic word. But then there are others still that say these things are too strange. You read these things and you see these symbolic pictures and these characters here, and this is just too weird for me. I'm not interested in this. But then the same group of people will go out and call a bizarre piece of art a structure that has no meaning whatsoever a blob of paint on a piece of paper and hang it in a museum and say it has incredible meaning and pay millions and millions of dollars for it and so this is so odd and it has to do with the heart and where your heart is turned towards and I believe that the odd things of the scriptures that seem odd to this world have meaning from the Lord And if we will look at what the purpose of the presentation of these things are, we will begin to see the meaning in these things. But I can also tell you we will never know all the meaning of these things until after they come to pass and are fulfilled. The second coming of Christ will be very much like the first coming of Christ in that there was very clear and particular prophecy But it was not fully understood until after the events had passed, and then people were able to see what had happened, and they were able to be greatly encouraged by what the Lord was doing in the world. And so the problem is not with the scripture, but it is with the human heart. And so today we will see the raging nations of the world under the authority and dominion of God the Father. And this dominion being given to Jesus the son. And then next week as we get to the second half of Daniel chapter 7. We'll see this dominion then given to the saints and to the church. Which is fascinating. And I cannot wait to cover that portion of this. But similar to the dream that we have in Daniel chapter two is what we have again here this morning. Daniel chapter two, if you were with us, was this great statue made of various metals and it it spoke to us of four different kingdoms that were to come and were to rise and were to fall. But this has four creatures or four beasts, but it is a more emotional and more impactful and a more personal vision than this static uh, statue made of metal. But the thing that is most important about our passage this morning is that it is much more specific about the coming of Jesus Christ and the kingdom and how the dominion of the kingdoms of this world will be transferred to Jesus the Son. And that transference of dominion will be given by God the Father. And it is abundantly clear this morning. So we're going to read from Daniel chapter 7 verses 1 through 14. If you would please stand uh, with me to honor the Lord as we read God's word this morning. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. And Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it, and behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke to pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns, and I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn, its eyes were like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And as I looked, thrones were placed. And the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. and glory, and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, Daniel is given this vision from the Lord. This is something that is of revelation, meaning it is revealed by God to him. This is not something that he could ever press into through his own study and through his own research and find out. It's something that must be revealed. And it's so interesting to me that it's revealed to him, not in the temple, which he couldn't be at because he was a person in exile, but it's revealed to him in his own home, in his bed as he is asleep at night which is very often the case in many, many times in the scriptures. And this speaks in a way that is important to you and I, to the daily authentic godliness of Daniel. Daniel's heart was prepared to receive something from the Lord because he was in a state of preparedness to be before the Lord. And it makes me think of, am I prepared in my heart when I go to bed each day and when I rise each morning? Because there's going to be another vision later that comes to him in the middle of the day. You know, the Lord does not do this to those whose hearts are, are wayward to him, those that have no interest in the Lord. But for those whose hearts are prepared and are seeking and are ready to receive a word from the Lord, he communicates himself to them. And so are you Are you ready? Are you a person that is daily in the scriptures and in prayer? Are you a person who is seeking their heart to be open and tender towards the things of the Lord? When you spend time in God's word, are you sincerely asking God to communicate something of himself to you that you might walk away from that time being nearer to the Lord and understanding more of who he is in a personal way, Or are you just checking off a box and reading something that you may have read before, or just seeking information that is not transformational to your life? I encourage you to be like Daniel in seeking for God to reveal himself to you, to make something of himself known to you, that when you go away from that time of prayer and go away from that time in God's word, that you might be different in your heart. Well, Daniel, in this dream, this vision that is given to him, sees four beasts rising from a raging sea stirred up by the wind. You know, the Bible is full of of interesting comparisons, but the open sea is one of those things that's often referred to in the Bible. If you've never been out in the open sea, you need to do it. Because being in the open sea is not like being on the beach at all. And if you have ever been out in a raging storm in the sea, you understand what is a little bit of what is being said here, the tumultuous nature of a raging sea. People don't jump off the boat and swim in the open ocean when they have hundreds of feet below them. Why? Because you just don't know what might come up out of that deep. And so you want to stay in the boat. The churning open sea is a fearful place. A place that is unknown, that is dangerous. And out of this picture comes four beasts. The first is like a lion. It says it has eagle's wings. It spreads these wings and they're plucked off. And it stands up like a human with a human mind. The second is like a bear devouring, it actually has ribs in his mouth, he's he's chomping, the fourth is like a leopard, and notice that each one of these says like, 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 almost every time in some sort of prophetic vision, you'll see the word like or as many times, Because it's trying to convey to us something that is of a spiritual reality or something that is different or something that is symbolic. It is not an exact thing. It is not something that we can fully grasp at the time. And so it is like something. And so this third beast has a division to it. It's divided in that it has four heads, but it's given dominion. And then the fourth beast is like no beast, it, there's just no summary of it. Whatever it looked like, it couldn't be summarized by any living animal known on earth. But it is terrifying, it's dreadful, it's strong, it has iron teeth. It also is devouring, it's crushing, it has these horns. And one of them, it, which rises up, begins to boast and seize It's my understanding that the four beasts that we have here are again related to the four kingdoms that are yet to come after Daniel, similar to the previous vision of the statue made of gold and silver and bronze and iron. We have four beasts, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, all of which will rise up and will rise up in strength, rise up in chaos. They will use violence and power to overwhelm the world and take a piece of the world, but each one of them will fall in their time. And that Rome will be an empire unlike any other empire before it, in its greatness, but also in its division, but in its strength and in its destroying. But as we're going to see here in a moment, the dominion of each of these empires will be taken away and each of them will fade out in their own time, but not by happenstance, but by the will of the Lord. They will be taken away. Their ability to control and their power will be removed and will be given to someone else. And so as Daniel is looking at these beasts and not understanding what they are or what their significance is, the vision changes to where he sees a vision of the throne room of God. There are a number of places in the Bible where we are given hints and little tidbits of what it is that, that the, the throne room of God is. And this is one of those important places. It says that thrones are placed in verse 9. And on the main throne, the ancient of days takes his seat. This is a just a incredibly meaningful title for the Lord God, for God Almighty. It's only used in this chapter. It's used three times in this chapter, and it's a beautiful title, a title that has much meaning wrapped up into it. The idea of God the Father being ancient conveys to us certain things. First of all, it's very, very old. And you hear me say this often if you've been in Redeemer long, that we are not seeking to do a new thing or find a new thing in this church. We are seeking to stand upon ancient ways and walk in ancient paths because God our Father is eternal. He has existed from eternity past and will exist to eternity future. And we are seeking to walk in the ways of Christ, preserving the things of the Lord. But usually when we think of something ancient, we think of it as being decrepit, Worn out or something of past relevance, not something of present relevance. But the Lord God is ancient, but in his ancient nature, he has lost none of his power, none of his relevance, none of his strength, none of his dominion over the world. And so with God almighty, eternal living, he is ever powerful before these raging nations. So the description of the ancient of days is this that he's clothed in perfect white, which obviously relates to the purity and the light of God. How often we hear God described as he who is is all light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so he is seated on this throne in a radiant white robe with white hair like wool and it's unavoidable. If you have read chapter one of Revelation, as soon as you read this description, it takes you straight there. In Revelation chapter one, John sees a vision of the resurrected Lord Jesus. And it's very interesting because that vision of the resurrected Jesus is very similar to this. And see, so like, what, is, what do we have going on here? Because one is of Jesus, one is of God the Father. But remember, we believe in a, in a Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, being one God. And so there is much mystery here, but this revelation of the ancient of days is so similar to the revelation of the resurrected Jesus. Because though they are different in their person and office, they are one God. And there is mystery here, but there is also beauty. If you have not read the first chapter of Revelation, you need to do it this afternoon. The throne that the ancient of days is seated upon is a throne of fire, which is otherworldly. No person could sit upon a throne of fire. This is said to have wheels of fire in it which relates directly to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel we see this interesting vision of the Lord and these wheels of fire and from this throne comes a stream of fire. Like what in the, this is crazy. What is happening here? But this is not unusual, why? Because the Old Testament so often associates God with fire. Like what what is the connection here? When God first reveals himself to the people as they have come out of Egypt in the Exodus on Mount Sinai, the, the mountain is burning, it is on fire, and they're so afraid of it they all pull back from this mountain saying, let the Lord have nothing to do with us or we're going to be killed. And when he leads them around the desert, he leads them by a pillar of fire, we have these, these examples of fire coming out of the temple to destroy those who insist in raging against Moses and in false worship. There's all kinds of examples of God and fire in the Old Testament. But we see the same thing in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, it's very clear that we should take a step back in the fear of the Lord because it says our God is a consuming what? Fire. What does this mean? What is happening here? What is going on here? It's my understanding of these continual images of God and fire relate to the fact that fire is is an interesting thing. Because fire is both beautiful and it's dangerous. It's both necessary and it's fearful. We love a fire, I love, I, I intentionally make fires in my backyard, we'll go and hang out around it feels good, I love a fire. But there's a ring around that fire because I don't want that fire to get out of control. And if you have ever been around a fire that got out of control, it gets real scary real fast. And you don't want to get burned by this fire. And so it is an interesting analogy or comparison that God takes something that we understand and he associates himself with it that we might grasp something of who he is. I think it's very similar to how he compares himself to a lion, the lion of Judah. Often he is compared to as a lion, which is also something that is beautiful and something that is dangerous. Something that is elegant, but also something that is fierce. And we see both of these things bound up in the character of God the Father. This is the God who sits in dominion over the raging nations. If these four raging beasts and all their wildness and their teeth and their stamping and their boasting and all this, that this God seated quietly upon this throne in absolute dominion and power rules over them. In the court of the Lord God, the court of the ancient of days, we see in the second half of verse 10, that before him there is a thousand thousands serving him. A thousand thousands is a million, folks. Those that serve the Lord in heaven are his angels. Angels were created to hear the word of the Lord, obey it, and go and do the word of the Lord. So I don't believe this is a specific exact number, but it's meant to convey that there is a vast multitude of angels that sit in the presence of the Lord to serve him and to do his bidding, a number that is far beyond anything that any king could ever imagine. The greatness of his power, and when he speaks, they act, and his word is accomplished. Also before him, it says, stand 10,000 times 10,000, which is 100 million. I don't know what the largest crowd you've ever been in, but about the largest crowd I've ever been in was supposedly somewhere around a million people, and it was, the, it was just a sea of people. I couldn't believe how many people were there. And you just got lost in it. And the idea of a group of people being 10 times that many and all standing before this great flaming throne of the ancient of days is something worth thinking about, something worth contemplating. Because I believe that one day we will stand before the throne of God. We will be a part of that audience. It is something that ought to evoke awe and worship in your heart. It's something that ought to take you out of your little cubicle at work and from behind the computer and from behind the phone and think about something different. To think about a reality that is way beyond what we deal with every day. And it should give us hope, as I said before. But it also has enough mystery to it that we must believe it by faith. And so this ancient of days sits upon his throne to judge the world. And it says books are open. Uh, In the latter part of verse 10, he sat in court, the court sat in judgment and the books were open. What kind of books are we talking about? We get a glimpse into this in Revelation chapter 20, what these books are all about. The judgment of the great white throne. Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This idea of a book being opened up and all the deeds of your life being read out before you should terrify you. I, I really don't want to see the book that has all the deeds of my life. I, I've thankfully forgotten many of the failures and faults and the sins of my life because they've been covered by the grace of Jesus Christ. But this is what the salvation of Jesus is about. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life is not those that, have, that were the richest or the strongest or the most able or the most righteous in the way that they conducted themselves, but those who cast themselves upon the grace of Jesus Christ and are forgiven. And the victory that they have is through the victory of Christ Jesus, which we're gonna see more about here in a moment. And so there is this scene unfolding before us of those that are of the Lord, those that are not of the Lord, and of the power, the general dominion. The the whole focus of this particular passage is about the dominion of the Lord God and that dominion being passed to the Son of Man. Those who will be saved on that last day are those who believe in Jesus, that he was sent as the Savior of the world. And so what we see in verse 11 is a little bit changing back to these beasts. So somehow over this scene of the throne room of God, there is the, the, the shouting or the boasting of this fourth beast, which interrupts the scene, his boasting and his raging. And it says that this fourth beast is killed and burned. And this is not by some great epic battle. It's just by the word of the Lord that your dominion is taken away, someone go and and do away with this, and he is done away with, and that's it. This great stamping, raging, iron-toothed, ferocious mess is done with. And in verse 12, it goes back to the vision of the throne room. And it says that, Behold, on the clouds of heaven there came one as the Son of Man. Because what happens in verse 12 is that the other three of the beast, it says that their dominion is taken away from them. Dominion is an important word. Dominion means to govern, to have the power to govern or control. That's what dominion is. And we understand that. There there are people that have authority and they, whether you like it or not, have authority over you. And they have the authority to coerce you and press you into what they would want to happen. And these other nations of the world have had dominion. But what happens here is that the Ancient of Days takes away this dominion and is going to give this dominion to he who comes upon the clouds as the Son of Man. Verses 13 through 14 speaks of the Son of Man entering into this scene on the clouds, which is fascinating, because what we're gonna see here is this is this is Jesus. The Son of Man is the most common term and title used of Jesus in the New Testament. Used by himself, about himself, and others about him. This passage is absolutely essential to understanding who Jesus is. And so the exact same description of Jesus coming again is him coming on the clouds of heaven. We see it in Matthew 24 and also in Revelation chapter one. I'm gonna read for us from Revelation uh, chapter one. Let me get there, I forgot the market. Revelation one, five through eight. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Son of Man, in this vision of Daniel, is given dominion, a kingdom, that all will serve him. And I want us to see the connection this morning between this passage and the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. We could go on time and time and time again, but I hope you will read the Gospels differently, connecting the term and the title, Son of Man, to this passage here. I think the most particularly important passage in the Gospels related to this is the great confession, some people often say, of of when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, we have Matthew's rendering of this. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Isn't that interesting? Jesus asking the disciples, who do, what does the world say that the Son of Man is. This passage in Daniel was absolutely known and recorded at that point in time. People understood that the Son of Man was going to come at some point, And these great kingdoms of the world were going to fall. And the Son of Man was going to be given power and dominion. And Jesus is using that term of himself. We have to see that. People that say, oh, Jesus didn't know who he was or what was going on or wasn't aware of of anything that was happening, that's ridiculous. Jesus knew exactly who he was. And he knew that he was the son of man come, sent from the ancient of days. And he says to his disciples, who does the world say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. What a beautiful passage. The Christ, he's the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is exactly what we see in Daniel. Something revealed to us by God to Daniel 500 years before this happened. And Jesus saying, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they realized that Jesus is the one that was long prophesied and foresold. And they didn't learn that through their own geniusness or their own uh, pressing in. But they learned it because it was revealed to them by God. Jesus is the Messiah. And in this passage in Daniel, Jesus is given by the Father dominion. The dominion is taken away from the kingdoms of this world and is given to Christ Jesus the Son. To him was given dominion, and to him was given glory, and to him was given a kingdom, a kingdom that is everlasting and will not pass away, which is of great importance as we look at these two visions that are all about power passing away from world kingdoms. And we see that, we've, lived, we've had enough history behind us where it's obvious to see Every kingdom rises and then falls into decadence and then fails. When we look at our own country, we wonder about the future. How long will we last? Because we see every country fails. But the dominion given to Jesus is a kingdom that will never end. One that is everlasting and will never pass away. And one that is not particular to geography. It's one that will encompass all peoples, all nations, and all languages. We see beautiful passages in Revelation about people from every tongue and every tribe and every race and every nationality being in heaven, redeemed by the Lord Jesus, standing before his throne, worshiping his name. Absolutely, hallelujah. This, this multitude of hundreds of millions will not be one nation and one type of people. It will be of all the peoples of the world as the missionary enterprise of the gospel goes out and the Lord redeems people to himself. This is the son of man. The son of man, Jesus who came with the authority to forgive sins. Jesus who after he resurrected from the dead and is on the mount right before he ascends into heaven tells his disciples all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the Jesus who sends us out to bear witness about him, not one who is weak, not one who is lost, not one who is old, but one who has all power and authority given to him. But I want to remind us, as we look at this scene, as we've talked some about, about judgment and the nature of coming judgment, that Jesus was very clear about the mission of the Son of Man in Luke 19. Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is why Jesus humbled himself and came from heaven to earth and was born as a man and would die to death, even death upon a cross, that you and I might be saved, that we might have peace with God, that our debt of sin to a holy God might be paid, and that by grace through faith we might be forgiven, and that our names be recorded in the book of life, that on that final day that your name might be read out and that you would be pardoned, not for your goodness, but because of the grace and the righteousness of Christ Jesus towards you. And that the Son of Man has come for your sake. So I ask you this morning, do you believe in this Jesus? We've looked at a a prophetic word, something that spoke to the future. And is now some of it in our past, some of it to come in our future. But will you confess your sins today to Jesus? Will you believe in him? You must have a savior. If you do not have a savior, you will perish I ask you this morning to stop joining in with the raging of this world against Jesus. Instead, bow your knee, bow your head, confess your sins and receive the grace of Jesus our Lord for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. What a powerful and beautiful passage. It's much to understand. I know there will be many that have questions and I pray that they would ask those questions and that we would do the very best to to understand the answers to these things. But we love you, Lord Jesus, and we praise you this morning, and we thank you for the, the little bit of insight, a little bit of vision into the throne room of heaven and the understanding of the dominion of Jesus Christ over all things. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith this morning, that you would give us hope in Christ Jesus. And I pray for every person here today that does not believe in Christ Jesus, that they would believe today that you would turn their hearts towards you, that they would love you and long for your coming. Lord God, be at work in our midst, accomplishing your will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. We are now going to transition to a time of the Lord's Supper. We do this uh, every month. And it is vital, we we turn and we look to remember the cross of Jesus Christ. We've spoken about it some this morning, but it is commanded of Christ Jesus that we reflect on the cross of Christ and that we not lose sight of what Jesus has done for us. And so this morning as we partake of these elements of the juice and of the broken bread, that we understand that the partaking of these things does not forgive sins. Instead, it is that which helps us to remember what Christ did for us. It is not for the unbelieving. It's not for those that have not trusted in Christ. This will not forgive your sins. It is for those that have already put their faith and trust in Christ, that they might turn back and remember what Christ has done for them on the cross, that we might reflect and rejoice in what Jesus has done, and that we might fulfill the command of Christ to never forget what Christ has done for us. So we do these things in remembrance of him. Well, the Apostle Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven that we are to remember these things. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Self-examination is a very important part of the regularity of partaking of the Lord's Supper. It is right that we look to our soul and that we consider what is there and that we confess our sins freshly to the Lord that our fellowship with him might be unhindered. And so I would ask you this morning to bow your heads and to close your eyes. I'm gonna read for us a little bit from Psalm 52 to begin this time of confession and introspection. Psalm 51, seven through 10 says this. I'm sorry, uh, one through four. This morning as we take time to confess our sins, I would urge you that if you have never confessed your sins the first time to Christ Jesus, that today would be the day that you do that. Today would be the day that you ask God to forgive you a sinner, that his grace might be upon you. If you know in considering your heart that you have something that you have done against someone else in this room, something that God brings to your heart by his spirit, I encourage you not to just go through the motions of these things, but that you would, in reality, when others stand to come forward, that you would go to that person that you have wronged, and that you would take them to the side, and that you would ask their forgiveness, that there might be peace in the church. And for those of you that just, your heart is troubled, go to the welcome desk. There will be someone waiting to pray for you during this time. Let's take a moment, a moment of silence that you might pray and confess these things to the Lord and be forgiven. Psalm 51, 7 through 10, speaks of forgiveness. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities and create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Lord Jesus, we rejoice this morning in your grace towards us, and that when we confess our sins, that you truly and earnestly forgive our sins, that you take the weight of guilt off of our heart, and it has been placed upon Christ Jesus, who has borne these things in our stead. I pray, God, that you would create in each and every one of us a clean heart, a heart that is joyful and is, walks out of this place this morning free from guilt because it has been forgiven by the grace of Jesus Christ. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for what you have done for us on the cross, and we remember it this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.